Hi and welcome. Welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I'm your host. This week, I was joined by another next gen. Exciting, exciting. His name is Theodore Sutherland. Though he doesn't work on a daily basis in his family's business, he works with a company called The Room, which is a leadership initiative essentially for African executives. And he had a very interesting perspective. He's managed to really add value from the sidelines to his family business. He had interesting viewpoints on institutional building on the continent, on leadership skills for um, next gens to imbibe, and also what we as African family businesses need to be thinking about to position ourselves to be relevant on the global marketplace. So enjoy. Hi, Theo. Welcome to The Connected Generation. It's awesome to have you today. Thank you, Nikkei. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. So can you give us an overview of your journey? I always love understanding how people get to where they are now. Um, Today, you're very passionate about leadership development and institutional building in Africa. What led you here? Sure. So there were probably two paths that got me here. Um, First of all, I'm from Ghana, so I'm born to a Ghanaian couple. They started a design and build firm uh, that they've been running over the last 25 years. They've done pretty well for themselves and for us as children, I guess, by extension. Uh, They've built, you know, IFC-funded projects. They've won international awards, and they're currently leading the design and implementation of um, Ghana's building about 100 national hospitals this year in response to COVID and just public health uh, crisis. So done incredibly well. Um, But in the next five years or so, when they actually reach retirement age, uh, their business may have to retire with them. Um, I think for me, watching that story uh, through my childhood and just seeing that story replicated in the story of my many uncles and aunts who have also built very successful businesses. I mean, they have financial capital, brand capital, lots of social capital, um, probably build their businesses more out of a place of passion or survival to pay for school fees for, you know, us middle-class kids mm-hmm. who now have the you know, luxury of pursuing our own personal interests, which may not always align with your business goals. So I think mm-hmm. if you take a step back from any of those personal stories that I've seen in my own journey, um, I think you see that the majority of businesses on the continent are SMEs, many yeah. of which are family businesses. Um, yeah. And I think for me, just studying economics and thinking about the world and passionate about the continent, I recognize that, you know, if the cycle of businesses basically is dying out every 30 years when people like my parents close their doors, you know, mm. the economy is effectively having to be recreated every 30 years. Mm. Um, and that level of flux, I think, really is a big hindrance to really establishing multi-generational wealth. Mm. Um, and so that's the first primary reason that I'm interested in institution building and why I think, you know, family businesses have such a key role to play in that. Um, How I got into leadership development actually ties to um, my time in university. In my last year in university in the States, um, the year I graduated, there was a lot of conversation around how universities around the world were immorally expensive. And Mm -hmm. the US was probably the most expensive, had the most expensive colleges in the world. Uh, My college topped the list that year. We were Um, $67,000. Yeah, Charlie, think about that. (laughs) Times Times, four, you've bought a massive house. It's five right now in Nigeria. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, just hearing that, hearing that Harvard is $61,000 and 
I mean, don't get me wrong, I had an amazing educational experience, um, but I didn't know the cost because I was on full tuition scholarship, so I never got the bills. Um, so that was really, I think, a big awakening for me. Uh, so I set off initially to work in education technology um, that was focused on making you know, world-class content accessible to people around the world for a fraction of the cost. Um, and one day when I was actually at work, um, I was watching a video by a entrepreneur called Fred Swanica. Um, and he was saying in that video, look, if you really want to rethink education, you have to be thinking about how education is developing entrepreneurial leaders that Africa needs. So mm. it's not just about, you know, what's Harvard teaching and how we move that to Africa, but really mm. rethinking the question of, you know, how are you developing leaders who are thinking uh, with, you know, entrepreneurship principles, if you wish, about how to mm. use a few things to do more than anybody thought was possible. Mm. Um, and so I've been with the African leadership group over the past decade on the mm. mission to develop 3 million um, leaders for the continent over the next 15 years. So that's, I think, the, the merger of those two worlds of institution building on one hand and mm. leadership development on the other that I think are so integrated uh, for the continent to really have a prosperous future. Amazing. I mean, now I understand, like, we're speaking from one economist to the other. A lot of what you were saying about, <laughs> yeah, like, about institutional building and, mm. you know, having multi-generational businesses. Mm. It's so important, especially against this context where we see that our currencies, unfortunately, lose value mm. over time. Mm. Uh, we have very volatile economic indices. So for the subsequent generations to start up their businesses, they're doing so against even more difficult economic terrains. Exactly. Um, so it's a, an easier path to preserve and sustain and multiply mm -hmm. what we'd already built as opposed mm -hmm. to everyone starting something new every From 30 scratch. years. Yeah, exactly. it doesn't make any sense. Exactly, exactly. And there was um, a, a quote by, I was chatting with... Uh, I can't forget her. I can't remember her name. Was it Raima? Rice? Ramia? Ramia. <laughs> Ramia had a brilliant quote when I was just sharing with her how I was thinking about my parents' business. She said, look, you, you can think on one hand about succession for your parents being the business continuing, but you can also think about it in terms of, you know, how are you as the children building on top of the social capital they built like all the relationships Precisely. the trust the brand yes. capital like are incredibly powerful um mm -hmm. so think about a plan of how you know your siblings and you can be introduced to those people to pass on that trust mm -hmm. uh, because those things really are the anchor of what any business is made of mm -hmm. um, and you can use that to leverage and build something else which might look different from what they initially had in mind mm -hmm. um, but i thought that was a very powerful way to also think about um transitioning and, and that yeah. extremely relevant in africa mm. right mm -hmm. where trust is eroded exactly eroded and so you know building on top of that social capital is, is absolutely i completely agree with that and i think there's also a conversation on what you were talking about the legacy of entrepreneurial leadership Mm. passing the legacy of the entrepreneurial skills from generation to generation. And that doesn't mm. necessarily mean that the next generation come into the existing family business, but they're learning from like, you've been watching your parents, your uncles, your aunts observing. I think mm. there's something very important about that. Mm. So along this, your journey, you must have faced some obstacles. I want to know about the obstacles mm. and how you overcame those. Certainly. Certainly. I, 
I'll share two um, obstacles uh, that have been perhaps most striking and consistent for me. The first one that I think is relevant for second gens as well is, you know, the challenge of leading while young. Hmm. I think for me, you know, I was, I've been really, really lucky in my professional journey. My first leadership role was at 24. Um, I was head of a team um, of professionals who were actually almost a decade older than me. Um, and was really lucky to be promoted into that role. Um, I became head of a university at 27. And as you can imagine, wow. universities are very traditional environments. I mean, everybody mm. from regulators to parents to students to faculty and staff, you know, most university uh, heads look like 60-year-old men mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, they have positions and credentials. They have doctor, doctor, doctor uh, behind <laughs> them. So, I, you know, I think I remember one of my... Um, Nigerian parents actually came by campus once. She was walking with her kid, trailing her, and she was not happy. Something that must have happened with orientation or so, and she was storming right past me until her son pulled me back. She's like, where's the head of the school? Where's the head of the school? So her son is pointing to me, and she's like, Are you, you mean head of the student government? And I was like, no, not quite. It's like head of the, the whole school. Uh, it took her a while for her to like wrap her head around that because uh, I probably look like the same age as her son. <laughs> um, so that's like the context, I guess, for, you know, my background in, in leading while young. But I think this challenge is very real one for most second gen leaders, especially if they're entering the business early. Mm. Um, I think what's interesting, this may not always be true, but I think what's interesting is that we typically have the confidence and conviction that we're actually capable um, of delivering value in the business. We either get it from our parents, um, who obviously think that we are capable, which is why they brought us in in the first place, um, or the conviction that might also just come from having seen the business be built over time. And so actually knowing quite a lot um, about how it, it operates in practice. And I think, you know, we also get, we are very uniquely placed because we definitely have the executive sponsorship uh, to be in the business mm. as well. But mm -hmm. we are often operating in very traditional cultures, cultures where age, tenor, tenure, excuse me, and mm -hmm. other proxies um, that we probably don't have are, are more valued than, you know, conviction and confidence and, and whatever kind of track record that you might have um, at that stage. So I think for me, the question of leading young really comes down to two questions. Mm. Um, one is, you know, in what ways are you competent for this role? Mm. And two, how can you set yourself up for success to be accepted into the role? I think no leader is a leader if you don't have people who are willing to come along the journey with you. Mm. And so the three principles I think that have been most helpful for me in answering these questions, I think one is around empathizing. In many cases, I've recognized, I think this was particularly true with a university, um, you really have to spend some time understanding like what's important to the people you're working with um, who are looking for they are looking for the credibility in you, but you also have to understand like what's the proxy that they are working towards. What I mean by that is, you know, I found in the in the faculty context, for example, where you know you can only become faculty if you have a PhD um, or you've gone to be a practitioner for a really long time. And I found that at the crux of it, when we sat down to talk through you know, the questions that we were asking, are you know, will this person acknowledge and respect my expertise? Will they acknowledge my experiences? young people taking over as their future for me um and so the the lack of acceptance is really a personal grappling um in that context at the end of the day and so spending time to empathize 
um, with your audience and whoever you're working with as a team, I think is really important to get to the crux of what to actually solve for. I think the second principle that's been helpful for me is demonstrating respect um, and leveraging strengths where appropriate. I think that first question as as posing around, you know, in what ways are you competent? Um, mm-hmm. Definitely recognizing that there are competencies that you need beyond yourself, as confident as you might be, as insightful as you might be, as data plugged in and digital, you know, millennial mm-hmm. as you might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's also really important to do. And I think people respect others who respect them and you build that over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, I'd say is do the job, just do the job. Um, I think being confident in your convictions, um, people will really respect you for leading effectively and not spending time cowering for their validation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that goes a long way for you know really building up that credibility with the audiences that you're leading. So leading while young, those would be my my sense of principles and how I've handled it and would love to hear how other people have done it well. Um, That's, mm, yeah. You have had, so you're, you're next gen, obviously, but you're not working in the business, but you've had experience that's very analogous to what uh, next gens in the business go through, having to lead all the teams from the university. Mm. So your, your tips are very much from real life experience and your point on empathy is, is cannot be understated. I think quite a lot of the times, like you were, you were, you were alluding to with respect to next gens are, you know, tech savvy, you know, understand data analytics or what have you, and mm. are future focused. A lot of the time, there's a mismatch between the generations because the style of delivery of mm. these ideas. Absolutely. And I really think if we can be more empathetic in from the heart from the mouth as well we'll be able to win greater trust and be able to have our voices heard i really mm. really do believe that mm. fully agreed fully agreed awesome so what role do you play in your family business i know you're not active but do you play any role from the sidelines Lots of lots of support. Uh, I'm also the oldest, so I guess that probably plays into mm. it a bit. Um, so yeah, I guess my when I was reflecting on it, my role in the family business has been primarily as a advisor for the business, and then as a thought partner for the the partners. It's an architectural firm, so the the title of the senior leaders is partners. Um, I speak with them pretty frequently. We chat on a weekly basis about the state of the business. Um, and I also periodically spend time immersed in it, especially when I'm in between jobs, um, just speaking to the staff, observing them, observing my parents in action, uh, mm. seeing how they engage, helping them identify blind spots and also just celebrating things that they do well as managers. Um, I think my mm. maybe my biggest value add has been helping them empathize more recently with the employee perspective, which I think they've long forgotten, mm. uh, not ha- having been the, those shoes themselves for the last 25 years. Uh, but I think the, the three areas I recognize that have probably been most consistent in our engagement on the business has been business strategy, management and operations um, around the strategy questions, you know, really just, they're so operational and understandably so that mm. you know, helping them to pause periodically and ask you know, tough questions like, how is the business of architecture changing? Um, you know, 10 years ago, you had you know, mostly small businesses in Ghana that were kind of driving architectural projects. People would come to you for design. 
more and more people are asking for you to do the build. Sometimes they're asking for you to advise on projects that you're not necessarily being the, the one to actually deliver. You are seeing more competition from South Africa, South African firms coming into the market, um, New York-based design firms, uh, there's a shift into going eco. There's so much happening. And so helping them to actually pause periodically to ask some of those questions um, and even personal questions. Um, you know, they're now about to cross over the 60 mark and wow. they don't have the kind of energy uh, that they used to anymore. They, you know, they also don't have children to pay school fees for. We're all thankfully relatively independent. Um, and so just helping them pause and think about like, you know, you have been doing business a certain way, but is there an opportunity now to rethink it and do more of what you want? Um, mm as well i think on the management side um i think because i've probably spent quite a bit of time now in the management role just helping them build up the awareness of management best practice mm. um grappling with questions like you know how's the team doing how do you know how the team is doing are you actually talking to them or that's your perception um you know who who has managed succession well in their company and how can you learn from them as you're thinking about um, team dynamics and structure. And, and then on the operations front, I think primarily helping them think through, again, best practice of cadences of institution building, mm. um, you know, separating personal money from company money yeah. uh, it has been a, a big one that they've, they've learned a lot and uh, I think modeled quite well, but also grappling with, you know, things like everybody's good at planning, not everybody's good at pausing to then do retrospectives on the plans you set out for. Mm. Um, so, they actually last week did their first, you know, end of year retrospective um, with the team, which I think was really powerful for them and teaching them how to do that in the COVID era online and helping them design their retreats, et cetera. Um, so I think those have been the primary ways I've been supporting them and playing a role in the business. You've been pretty active. Sorry, my statement saying from the sidelines might actually have given that you're not that you're pretty active. <laughs> We have to do what we can. These things That's have paid excellent. our bills. That's amazing. They yeah, actually. no, it's amazing. I love it. I really do love it. Thank and, you. you know, thinking about your passion about institutional businesses and having observed um, your family business, not just your parents, but your aunts and uncles and what have you, mm. what are the common mistakes you see African family business owners making with respect to building institutional businesses? That is such a good question. Um, so there are a few of them uh, that I could spot, at least from my small circle of uh, uncles, aunts. I think the first one is waiting to build the institution when they're in their legacy years. Um, like I was sharing a little earlier, I, I do think- You need to repeat that one. That, that, that one is the whole sermon. Aish, aish. <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole sermon. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> Waiting to build institutions when people are in their legacy years. Yes. I think, you know, as you know, institution building takes a lot of time. I mean, the time you have to take back to rethink, you know, how you've been working and how you need to be working, you know, it does require you sometimes to slow down, sometimes even to the point of having revenue impact. Um, mm. So it requires very thoughtful planning. You have to do a lot of work on yourself um, to be able to actually scale as a leader um, to enable the institution to exist and thrive beyond you. You need to do a lot of work on the business and kind of separate out your time from working in the business versus on the business, if you wish. Um, yeah, and the legacy years are just like the time where you may not have the, the scope of energy needed, the same motivation even, 
um, to drive that type of impact. And I think that's um, a big area of gap and why I'm hoping to help more organizations start that process earlier. I think the second is not identifying your Achilles patterns. I think what's interesting about founder-centric um, businesses in general is that they have very deep skin in the game. I mean, unlike general business leaders, you know, it's undoubtedly hard to step back from what you have built and in some ways your identity um, to really step back and identify your patterns of behavior, um, some of which are good that you may want to reinforce more thoughtfully, but some of which may no longer actually fit the stage of business or your vision for the company. I think an mm -hmm. example of that that um, is interesting is, you know, in architecture, you know, a lot of the business in the past has been driven by referrals, which is actually really great. Um, but on the other hand, you know, because they haven't built up the muscle naturally around business development, um, you don't necessarily have an organizational muscle around looking beyond, you know, the contracts that are coming to you and really understanding the market shifts um, and evolutions. And I think that's uh, really important to be able to identify your Achilles patterns um, such that you can actually then build long lasting institutions. And then lastly, just asking for help. Um, I think we could, do a, we could all do a much better job with, you know, identifying the moments when we are beyond our own depth and putting our hands up and saying, look, I need help in learning how to manage conflict better, conflict in my family that's mm -hmm. impacting other business conflicts within the team, between me and the team, on business strategy, on self-improvement even. Um, so I think asking for help and getting a truly rigorous assessment of where you are as yeah. opposed to where you think you are um, yeah. always goes a long way. Excellent, excellent points. And how do you think next gens can get involved in helping to build institutional family businesses? I think the two things next gens are incredibly well placed to do. One is looking beyond and two is candid assessments. Hmm. With looking beyond, I mean, my dad often laughs uh, when we go home because, you know, my wife and I, when we at the dinner table and my dad asks a random question, our default is immediately to Google what we don't know. So we'll be mid-sentence and he's like, I wonder what about this, this, this. And I'm just like, oh, let me find out. This is the answer. This is the answer. Like, <laughs> why are we? Yeah, Charlie, Google told us. <laughs> why, why are we asking questions still? Um, and there's just so much information online that literally I think any question you could ask for, you probably get a thread of some insights. Mm -hmm. And it's easier now than ever for people to find information that in the past was probably not as readily available. Um, I mean, even my context, I found um, Africa Family Firms because I put it out on a blog post. Um, that was my first reaction. I was just like, hey, I want to learn more about family firms. And you guys wow. came up on the radar as a result. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think as a millennial generation, we probably have a default muscle to naturally look beyond what is it that we know and what it, where is it that we are. Um, and I think that muscle of having being able to constantly look beyond as a default is a muscle that's helpful for institutionalizing any business. Um, mm. and one that I think is really critical because that way you always have perspective, um, which makes sure that you're building the right thing and not running in the wrong direction. Um, the second I'd say is candid assessments. I think the reality is that our generation is also, we've experienced unforgiving markets. We've seen what it looks mm. like for, you know, mm. markets that were forethought to be, you know, this is going to last for the next 50, hundred years and like in you know, taxi industry completely disrupted by Uber, et cetera, et cetera. And so because I think disruption, I think, is an expected part of everyday life, we don't take things for granted. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. we 
as we also have a privilege as being the kids of you know these uh, parents um, who we've been learning over time to learn how to influence as well. So the combination of being able to you know see that there is there is huge change that is possible um, and helping them come along that journey um, as we make those candid assessments, I think can be quite powerful uh, for working together, not necessarily making decisions for them, but really bringing them along the journey to see, you know, this is where you are, this is where the world is, and here are some of the risks involved in not making some big changes. Awesome, awesome. And your other passion, entrepreneurial leadership. What steps do you think next gens can take to sharpen that area? So three things come to mind that I think next gens can probably do. One, recognizing that you know awareness always precedes choice. That is not an original quote. Um, some wiser person said that, but I think awareness <laughs> of your awareness of your strengths and your gaps, um, I think, is going to be really crucial for being able to then sharpen any skill set. Um, my initial, when I started out on my journey, I think I used to think self-reflection would get me very far. I'd say mm. in retrospect, you know, self-reflection is great. It helps you identify and articulate your own values, how they show up from your mm -hmm. perspective, but they literally give you maybe only 24, 25% of your actual insights. You get a lot more awareness, um, I think, from pursuing feedback from other people you work with and putting yourself mm. in pretty challenging contexts. Um, to see how you engage and how other people engage you. So I think to build, to be able to make a choice to sharpen, you need to build your choice to actually grow your awareness, um, both of yourself, but also about how the world is changing. Um, so I think things like reading, plugging into diverse networks um, is always really powerful to continue growing that awareness um, of how the world is changing, how you need to change and how businesses need to evolve. The second thing I'd say uh, to that might be deliberate practice. Um, I think there's a lot of intentionality required and commitments to actually sharpen your skills. It's not the one day uh, moment of going to a great motivational talk or conference um, mm -hmm. a program even. I think there's a lot of um, requirement for us to think about how do we also, I think for me, deliberate practice is not just about you know stepping into opportunities as they come up, but actively creating opportunities. So if you're trying to grow your communication skills, you're not just waiting for the next you know, speaking engagement, you're creating one. Um, so I think really pursuing ways that you can create opportunities for deliberate practice will be powerful. And then lastly is just uh, recalibration. Um, I think a funny story is my, when I was in um, high school, I had, I think I won the writing award for like eight years in a row. Like it was so much so that when I was speech present prize giving day, I stand up, I'm ready. Even before they call names, <laughs> I'm ready. Theodore goes to America, sits in a class, a writing class that everybody needs to take for the first year. And Nikkei, after I started reading my peers' work, I, I grabbed my paper from here. I said, please, I've not finished. Give me back my paper. <laughs> I recognized in that moment that, you know, I had been a big fish in small pond. I had been benchmarking myself to, if you wish, local competition. And the moment, <laughs> I, I, the moment you land in a bigger pond, um, you know, your eyes open up so much. You, I was so humble coming from that experience. I don't, I don't overestimate my skill sets at all. <laughs> and I think it just, you know, you want to constantly recalibrate your your hmm. benchmark of excellence, not hmm. to the peers who are in your immediate vicinity, but always looking to the next two or three levels. Um, to make sure that you're not just sharpening, but you're sharpening to a high standard 
that's truly mm. global. I love that. I love that. Um, it reminds me of the saying, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is the king. Yeah. Uh, you know, and your point about deliberate practice is so apt. Have you read any of Stephen Pressfield's stuff? I have Turning Pro. Mm-mm. Yeah, um, I'd recommend that book. So he talks about the difference between an amateur and a professional. A yes. professional puts in the work regardless, no excuses, you know, and it's really about a mindset. I definitely recommend reading that book. It's an excellent, excellent book. Love um, it, love it. I'm always looking for new books, so that's a really good recommendation. <laughs> on to our continent. What are your thoughts on how, you know, we can make African companies more transformational. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, so I think, <laughs> I think for me, this was an interesting question to reflect on because I think the word transformational is a word that's used relatively loosely in our everyday vocabulary. And mm. while I think there isn't a very, there isn't a common specific definition for it, I think what the word ultimately speaks to is a desire to have you know, visionary, wide reaching and lasting impact. So if I take it from that perspective, um, my sense is that you know, there are multiple levers that are needed for businesses to grow, to expand, some of which are you know, driven by governments, but for the ones that I think are driven by businesses and with, within their control is first and foremost leadership. I think always thinking about, you know, do you actually have leadership that's willing to grow? For me, that speaks to a willingness to pursue truth. You know, am I pursuing truth about who I am as a leader, the truth about where my team is at, about the skills they have and don't have, the truth about my organizational culture, my org business model, the shifts that are happening in the world, and to pursue truth at all extents over any personally you know, strong held beliefs. Um, I think that is really important to then have the commitments to actually see, um, see that through and do something about it, and the humility to ask for help like we spoke about earlier. So those things tie into you know, not just leadership, but leadership that's willing to grow. I think the second lever that businesses have access to um, is thoughtful business cultures. Any journey to transformation um, may initially be sparked by one strong leader, but it's ultimately accomplished by a group of people with shared values and commitment and a shared sense of purpose as well. Yes. And I think leaders that are willing to grow also need to create the environments that attracts um, and empowers the best talents to build with them. Um, and if you don't do that effectively, you will be a great leader, but by yourself. Um, and I think the last thing that strikes me about this question of building transformation businesses is you know, back to this you know, founding truth around institutions, institution building. And the way I think about that is, you know, you have to learn how to build your business to be bigger than you. Yes. And I think that will often require you to learn how to delegate, to give up some of the decisions that you would otherwise want to make, to learn how to professionalize the company and build great systems and processes um, so that there is actually a game plan uh, beyond you being in the driver's seat. Um, some businesses to actually help spur this will actually force the founder um, or the CEO to take a year off um, from the business <laughs> to force you to really think about like, are you going to come back and meet an equally strong or better business? And if the answer to that question is no, you know you're far from building an institution and you probably need to change some of your habits um, to enable that to be possible. So I think that's a, a powerful way to just think about 
am I really building an institution, one that will then become transformational? Excellent, excellent answers. I know many business founders will struggle to take with that one one month off, off. <laughs> one year, one <laughs> year. They will really That's struggle, real. and that That's really real. highlights the importance of that mm. they need to really separate themselves from their businesses and build mm. true institutions. Mm. But yeah, excellent conversation. What are you working on that you're excited about? So for me, I'm definitely in the season, um, the decade in this career of wanting to support institution building in Africa in particular. Um, I'm focused on two levels to do that and really excited about family businesses. Um, I think there's such power in building an ecosystem to support them in Africa. And I think why I've been so excited about working with AFF and I love the work you guys are doing um, and want to continue to contribute where I can to you know, expand the impact of it. Um, unlocking relevant networks, using my experience where possible with some of the leadership development programs and retreats that I've done in the past to help businesses really find that space to reflect, connect, um, and learn from each other. With growth stage businesses, because I've primarily been in startups um, and scaling businesses for most of my career, they are also quite close to my heart, especially those that are taking Africa to the world. Um, so the two that I'm really excited about, I think they can change quite a bit this uh, decade for us. One is called Golden Baobab. They are curators of the um, African children's content. So they've been running a global um, Pan-African prize. That's won this past year, the equivalent of like the Keynes Prize for African children's literature. Um, So they've done really well gathering all of that. And so now it's about helping them actually publish, commercialize their treasure trove. Um, And I think part of why their work could be transformational is because I think two things that are critical on the continent, one is about identity and two is about Mm. skills. And they are tackling the question of identity by helping African children really see themselves as leaders um, and to know that it's possible for them to be beyond the types of books that we've been seeing in our childhood of who we look up to um, and building up their Mm. reading habits, which I think is a critical leadership leadership skill and life skill. Um, The last organization I'm doing quite a bit of work with is a, MIT Harvard Duo, they farm Moringa in Ghana and export it to Asia, the US, Europe, they're in Costco and Whole Foods. Um, so done lots in a pretty short space of time, um, but helping them very early on in their journeys, you know, build a culture that's bigger than their founders, a leadership team um, that can also support the kind of scale and growth that they're going through um, mm-hmm. and working on the business in as much as they're working in the business, which is mm-hmm. always tough when you're growing it so rapidly. Tough. So. Yeah, I think that's really exciting. I think for for me in that example, it's powerful to create models like that, but also Mm. to use the lessons we're learning from, you know, basically the story I was sharing about, you know, um, moving from a Ghana-based competence and standard of excellence to a global state of excellence. You know, for an organization that's learned how to deliver at the standard of Costco, Whole Foods, you know, Europe, et cetera, how can we use those lessons to build many other African SMEs um, that could similarly do that? Um, at a high standard. Um, mm. So I think that's going to be hugely transformational uh, for the continent as well with the lessons we learn. Amazing. I love, love, love the piece you said on Africa to the world, which is consistent with your second example as well. And mm. there's a huge opportunity for lots of business owners, creatives, service providers across the board um, to really serve the world and grow exactly. out into the world presents such a great opportunity not just an economic one but the social 
opportunity to tell our stories mm. and we tell our stories in different ways right for the world to get to know our perspective mm. the world to have a taste of our culture i think it's really really important that we do step mm. out into the world absolutely um, yeah no and yeah your point about you know having to up your game as well <laughs> is necessary <laughs> it's, it's real it's real it's necessary absolutely it's necessary yeah awesome. if you don't do it the markets will yeah yeah <laughs> so if anyone wants to keep in touch with you how best can they reach you uh best to reach out to me on linkedin i'm always happy to hear from new people it doesn't matter what the context is um so always looking to learn and if there's ways you think i could support with the work i'm doing or we have common shared interests please feel free to reach out to me my name is Theodore Kofi Sutherland um and you can find me i currently work with the room um as my full time job although i do a bunch of other things um on the side as well amazing i really enjoyed this time with you thank you so much Theodore same here dk thank you so much for the invitation i hope to hear from other people on the podcast as well who i love that conversation like that was a whole sermon <laughs> about not waiting till we're in our legacy years to start building institutions that's powerful so 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 powerful and it really is a reminder that we build with an end in mind so if we think like we're building a building for instance no contractor mobilizes to site without architectural drawings engineering designs with a very clear idea of what they're trying to build and similarly no contractor assumes they'll be able to build a 15 story building on a weak foundation so if we're trying to build family businesses that will stand the test of time that will endure even not necessarily family businesses family enterprises that will endure for let's say a, a 100 years 200 years we have to build very sturdy deep quality foundations and that starts from inception in fact it's much more difficult to retrofit an existing building and then try to change its foundation is practically in some instances impossible right so the work on the foundation requires working on ourselves as leaders working on our families working on our businesses our people our processes and what have you so yeah and i also love the piece on you know africa to the world not being that big fish in small water <laughs> you know and really in this knowledge economy we're going to see more and more services being exported across borders and for us to compete on the global stage we really need to up our game so yeah thank you so much enjoy and have a lovely day